Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. It's 30 with Murdy with your host, Sweeney Murdy. Welcome back, everybody. This year marks the 50th anniversary of the Miracle Mets, who won the World Series in 1969 after seven years of comic misery since their birth in 1962. The 69 Mets have carved out a place in the sports landscape of New York City, and it's a piece of real estate they have had a firm hold on for literally half a century. Their story is well known in these parts, and one of the iconic moments of that magical World Series run belongs to our guest this week, Ron Swoboda. Signed by the Mets in 1963 and debuting with them as a 21-year-old outfielder in 1965, Swoboda was part of the young stable of players that dug the Mets out of oblivion and started them on the path to respectability. It took a few more pieces, including ace Tom Seaver and manager Gil Hodges, to get them on the path to greatness. In this conversation, Swoboda helps take us through the journey to the 100-win season in 1969, the sweep of Atlanta in the best-of-five NLCS, and the four games to one World Series victory over the heavily favored Orioles. Swoboda's forever moment in this story came in the ninth inning of Game 4, a diving, sprawling catch that is always ranked among the best catches in baseball history. The moment defines Swoboda's nine-year career so much that his book, released earlier this summer, is called Here's the Catch, a memoir of the Miracle Mets and more, which is available from Thomas Dunn Books and St. Martin's Press. For a 50th anniversary look back at the 69 Mets and the catch, here's my conversation with Ron Swoboda. Ron, first of all, tell me, how does it feel to be part of something that is so special that people still want to talk to you about it 50 years later? Yeah, you know, it is an amazing phenomenon because you, you play baseball, it, it is such a short career. Um, you can disappear into the uh, dustbin of history um, in short order. And, and we were lucky enough to get ourselves in the middle of something back in 1969 that seem to have some historical legs, you know, and that, that's been great. We were at the Paley Center down in Manhattan you know, the other night, and uh, a full house, everybody into it, you know, older people, people who had lived through 1969 and enjoyed that whole process, and that's where we are now. We, we all kind of share the, the memories together. Everybody has their own perspective. We were all there. Do you find yourself uh, being approached or talked to by younger fans? You know, maybe like the the sons or grandsons or daughters or granddaughters. Oh, it's really funny uh, coming up to New York on the uh, airplane from New Orleans, where I live. The guy sitting next to me was a young guy, and he kind of figured out I'm, I wear my uh, World Series ring on these trips because I feel like 
I don't normally wear it. I haven't over the years worn it. Uh, but uh, with this celebration year, uh, 50th anniversary, I, I feel like you need to uh, bring out the bling, you know? So <laughs> he looked at my ring and figured out who I was. And, uh, you know, he was a young guy. looked like he was, you know, barely 30. And, and you, know, I, you know, he said, can I shake your hand, Mr. Swoboda? And I like. Well, sure. Um, I said, you look a little young to be, uh, you know, cognizant of all this. And, you know, he told me how he sort of figured it all out. But, yeah, mostly, you know, I'm 75 years old. Mostly it's people in the 60s and 70s that, that went through all of this. Ron, these reunions get harder every year, don't they? Because I know they're, they're you know, <laughs> obviously as time goes on, there are people who can't be with you as, as these keep happening. Yeah, that that um, that part of it uh, hits you in the face. You know, I I've had uh, uh, eight weeks ago. I had triple bypass. I was on the uh, on the dais last night uh, with this discussion at the Taylor Center with Ed Cranepool. He's walking around with somebody else's kidney. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we had you know Tom Seaver is going going through dementia, um, and and as is Buddy House and our shortstop, and so is Ron Taylor, um, who came out of the bullpen for us, and that part of it is scarier than the mortality thing, you know, whether you're here or you're not here. Uh, to, to, to be going through Alzheimer's or something like that, those memories are golden to me. They're, they're treasure, and, and the thought that something could sneak in there and uh, and steal them and they're gone is is. is tragic and, uh, uh, on a scale that I have no words for. Yeah. Yeah, it is uh, it is quite sad. You're right. Uh I want to I want to go back to some happier days with you and I want to start talking to you about um you know you signed with the Mets before there was a draft, a couple of years before the draft came in. So this right. is 1963. So my question is, why the Mets? Why were you signed by the Mets? Why did you have other choices and what did you think when you signed with the team that the previous year had lost 120 games? Well, the pitch for them was, um, there's a check for $35,000. That's not <laughs> the uh, conversation on the right foot. Um, <laughs> and then they made the point that, you know, this, this team is, um, is a, is a roadway to the big leagues. So that should, should get you there faster if you can play. Hmm. And um, little did I know that there was this uh, convention called the first year rule before the draft. They had to protect players in their system who had uh, who had played one year of organized professional baseball, one of a couple of ways. They either declared you for your second professional year as the one guy they could send out to the minor leagues and protected. Or they kept you on the big league roster, allowed them to protect you, or else you could get drafted by another team right off of right off of their um, you know their roster. And they lost Paul Blair um, a year or so before that uh, by failing to protect him in this first year rule situation. Of course, Paul Blair was you know one of the top couple of center fielders of for his entire career. We played Paul Blair with the Orioles, who grabbed him in the 1969 World Series. He was a pretty good player. Yeah. So the Mets more or less overreacted and kept four of us on the big league roster. Me, Doug McGraw, um, you know, who had his great career with the Mets and then went to the Phillies, and then 
there was uh, Jim Baskey, a sinker slider guy who didn't pitch much in the big leagues, and uh, an, um, Danny Napoleon, an outfielder who didn't play much in the big leagues, out of Ryder College. Um, so after one year of organized professional baseball, I'm in the big leagues. I'm playing for Casey Stengel, <laughs> or at least I'm sitting on the bench uh, yeah. for opening day, 1965. Yeah. 65 was a was another hard season for the Mets. You lost 111 games, but I'm looking at you. You were 21 years old. You mentioned Tug McGraw. He was 20. Cleon Jones is 22. Buddy Harrelson is 21. Both came up that year as well. You know, I'm curious to know like how you guys felt. Did you know that you were going to be good soon, or were you looking at this team that was losing 100 plus games every year and wondering what was going to happen? You know, I think when you're that young. It's such an amazing thing to be in the big leagues way before you thought it would happen. Okay, so it you know when no one explained that that rule to us until near the end of spring training. I hadn't played that much. Um, I you know uh, Cleon hadn't played that much. You know um, McGraw hadn't played that much. So all the guys that they were keeping in 1965 because of the first year rule. Um, the four guys that I mentioned, we didn't play that much in the spring. So when we found out there was a mechanism that was going to get us to the big leagues, we're like, wow, that's, that's pretty cool. Except, you know, you're not ready. You know, yeah. you, you know that, that you haven't done the work. Your game is not ready for the big leagues, but there you are. And that was the more frightening aspect to it. It's like, here I am opening day. Don Drysdale's on the mound for the, uh, L.A. Dodgers in Shea Stadium, the place is full up, and uh, you're sitting there on the bench, Casey Spengel is the manager, and you're wondering, wow, this is a pretty nice little seat I got here. Uh, <laughs> this, is, this is a lot of fun. And uh, and that's the way it went until uh, he decided to call me up as a pinch hitter, at which point I thought I was going to have a heart attack. Um, <laughs> You know, because there's Drysdale out there, and he was pretty formidable even back then. And you're like, I'm not so sure I'm ready for this. <laughs> but, you know, Stengel goes, I'm going to get a bat with that gravelly voice, you know, and up you go. And you try to act like you've done this before, and you try to act like you're not going to, like, pass out in the process. So, you you know, you're putting on your big boy uh, face and, and – uh, and you walk up the home plate, and Drysdale winds up and throws me a fastball that, you know, I haven't seen it yet. You know, <laughs> strike one, you know. I mean, he blows it in there, and you're nervous anyway. So when you're nervous, your vision kind of gets smaller, and, and uh, you know, boom, he throws his fastball. And, you know, all I could say was, it sounded like it. <laughs> I, didn't really, I didn't really see it. I end up, you know, two quick strikes, and I'm thinking, well, the good news is this isn't going to take too long. And, <laughs> and uh, he throws me a slider, which I saw. <laughs> good thing. <laughs> I hit a line drive to the second baseman, Jimmy LaFeepa, who was that year's rookie of the year, yeah. or would be, and made what still remains the best out I ever made in, 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 in big league baseball. Um, I hit a line drive off of Don Drysdale. In my first at bat, I thought that was pretty hot. You wow. could have the out. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Making contact after that, after those first couple oh, of pitches. Yeah. Wow. Listen, as you guys are starting to learn how to play at that level and learn the game and figure out who you are, 
Tom Seaver arrives in 67 and he is a player of a different level. And it's pretty, uh, it's, it's pretty uh, obvious to everybody right away. What did his arrival mean to your team? Yeah. I mean, you know, Seaver can, you know, back when I was doing sports, um, I was in Phoenix, Arizona doing sports out there. And there's a, there's a camp car track out there, um, uh, that if you, if you set up a champ car, you know, Indianapolis car, if you set up a champ car uh, to handle the turns at PIR, Phoenix International Raceway, you put it in the box, you take it out of the box, you're ready to run at Indianapolis right out of the box. I make that analogy because when Seaver came out of the box in the big leagues, he was Tom Seaver with all of the stuff, all of the confidence, um, that you could ever want that he that he was going to have. Um, he 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 was ready to go, and you didn't see any break in with Seaver. He came out as the Hall of Fame guy, who was just missing the numbers that would eventually lead him to the Hall of Fame. You didn't see uh, some guy struggling to find his way. He knew where he was going. He knew what he had and how to pitch and how he was going to do it from day one. And, you know, we had Kuzman, too. And don't never undersell Jerry Kuzman because when we had that one, when we had that one-two punch and then they found some other young arms to come behind them, uh, like Jim McAndrew and uh, and Gary Gentry, um, and then Tug McGraw was there, of course. Um, you had uh, you had some young guys that, that had some pretty good stuff. And, oh, by the way, Nolan Ryan. Yeah. In 1969, the first save of the season was garnered by Nolan Ryan. Wow. A three-inning save. How about that? Wow. For a piece of trivia. There you go. The first year they had actually uh, had the save as a stat, I believe. Seaver obviously changed things for you guys, but the other guy who changed things was... Gil Hodges. And, you know, yep. I'm thinking about a story that I heard Bart Starr, the old Green Bay Packers quarterback, tell about how the yep. Packers were terrible. And in the first meeting with Vince Lombardi, he walked out of the meeting, called his wife and said, honey, we're going to be good now because that first meeting made such an impression. The first meeting with Gil Hodges. What do you remember about that? Well, I think we all knew that this whole program was going to get a little more focused and a little more serious. And if you weren't up to that, you weren't going to beat around. And I think Gil's looking at those young arms and a couple of us younger guys. Um, They had some talent in that organization that was unproven, but you were going to get a chance to play. And, you know, I mean, to be 100% candid, I had trouble getting along with Joe Hodges. Um, I had always, much to my chagrin, um, Always had a little bit of trouble with authority, <laughs> and I still do at the age of 75. Um, it's less of a problem now. It was more of a problem. I just figured out how to do things to annoy him, and, and um, um, you know, and it's on me, because Hodges just wanted you to be, you know, act like an adult and make yourself the best baseball player you could. And, and I could do some of that some of the time. But I had a hard time doing all of that all of the time. <laughs> and uh, I kick him off uh, with regularity and, and um, 
you know, that's on me. If I had a little more maturity, uh, maybe that wouldn't have happened. Because he didn't want anything from you, but just what I said. Be a good ball player, help him win games, and act like an adult. Ron, did that have anything to do with, like, I noticed that you didn't play in the NLCS. Is that any part of it, or were you injured, or it was no, another reason? No, you know, we were, we, we platooned, as, as we came down the stretch, we platooned. I think our best hitting uh, lineup was the left-handed lineup. Okay. Um, they scored a lot of runs, um, and uh, as a matter of fact, uh, here's some perspective for you. The Braves... In spring training, try, we're talking to the Mets about trading Joe Torre over there. Mm. But the Braves wanted to get into our young arms. You know, they wouldn't have minded, uh, you know, Gary Gentry or Nolan Ryan. Mm-hmm. They were looking. They were looking for a lot of a lot of good young players for Joe Torre. The Mets, I think, weren't sure what they were as a team, and weren't ready to give up any of these young guys for a team that wasn't ready to compete. Um, and so they don't make the deal, and they took some criticism for it. The Braves trade Joe Torre to the St. Louis Cardinals straight up for Orlando Cepeda, yeah. another great right-handed hitter, and don't don't get the pitching uh, they were looking for, okay? Right. So what happens in the NLCS? The Mets, out, our left-handed platoon, outscored our pitch. Henry Aaron, Orlando Cepeda, Rico Cardi, um, some pretty good hitters. Wow. We outscore them and, and, and sweep them in three games. I think it's significant that we didn't make that deal. Um, way back when Johnny Murphy, the general manager, and Gil Hodges weren't 100% sure what, what was going to happen with some of this young talent that they wanted to see before they got rid of them. Hey, uh, I want to go back just a little bit, a few months before any of this. Uh, I'm curious your perspective on this. You know, the Jets, who shared Shea Stadium with you, win the yes. Super Bowl in January of 1969. Now, I remember a couple of years ago in Cleveland when the Cavaliers won the NBA championship, the Cleveland Indians front office all got on their on the roof of their stadium there, and they watched the parade, and they said, you know, guys, this could be us. And in a few months, they were in the World Series. They didn't win it. But I wonder what, you know, as, as you guys shared a city, shared a stadium, you probably knew sure. many of the players. When the Jets win, do you have a little bit of sense of, hey, this could be us? Well, you know, Archansky wrote that book about, you know, the us following the Jets in our championship and then the Knicks following us. Yep in May of the next year. And, you know, those, those, you know, all of those, uh, all of those trips to championships, um, actually went through Baltimore, the town I grew up in. You know, the Jets beat the Colts. And I got to be honest with you, as much as I liked the Jets and as much, you know, as, as much as we wanted them to win when they got to the Super Bowl, I'm a kid from Baltimore. I'm (laughs) a kid from the Colts. You know, I want Johnny United in that game sooner. Yep. Sooner. And, you know, and I still believe to this day, because that's what I grew up with. But, you know, we beat the Baltimore Orioles and um, the uh, Knicks, you know, they don't, they beat the Bullets, the yep. Baltimore Bullets, on their way to the Lakers yeah. in the playoffs. But they all, all those championship routes went through the city of Baltimore, where I grew up in Baltimore County. 
I kind of got away from your, your your question, but you know, I don't I don't think as the second team in that triumvirate, I don't know that we felt any manifest destiny. You know, we yeah. we knew we were going to be better. I don't know that anybody in spring training was looking at a championship. We we just wanted to be better. We had a lot of room to be better. Mm-hmm. We had only won like 73 games the year before, and that was the most the franchise had ever won. In spring training, Gil Hodges told the writers, he said, he thought this team could win 85 games. And I just remember looking at me and Ed Greenville looking at one another going, really? Huh? <laughs> um <laughs> He's talking about us, <laughs> you know. Uh, he put the carrot on the end of a pretty long stick, I thought. And uh, you know, and then of course uh, you start out the season. We we go into late May, um, the end of May, and we're bubbling around five hundred. We're no threat to anybody, really. If we end up five hundred, we've improved. Okay, mm-hmm. in a hundred and sixty-two game season. You know, if you win eighty-one, you know you've you've you really um, you've been proved by a good margin. Um, so that's where we were, bubbling around five hundred, and then something crazy happened. <clears throat> Going into June, we we reel off eleven straight wins, and I think it made everybody sort of reassess, including Johnny Murphy, the GM, and and Hodges and those guys. I think they went, wait a minute. <laughs> We just vaulted into, you know, relevance here, and that's when they made the Don Clendenin deal, and mm. they didn't give up any of the young arms that were pitching for us. Mm-hmm. That's what I think happened there that was so significant. Those 11 wins against the California teams, it started at Shea, and it finished up on the West Coast. All wow. California teams, 11 straight wins. We were, like, unbelievable. We... we uh, you know, baseball is one of those games where you do have to, in a 162-game season, you have to inspire yourself. Yeah. You can't You can't give 11 straight clubhouse, you know, uh, rock and roll meetings and, <laughs> and think you're going to, you know, inspire a team that can't play. But if you prove to yourself you can play, that's a lot of inspiration. That'll open your eyes. And, and that's what we did. And then also opened the eyes of management who said, well, now, Don Clendenin sits out there. He's a power-hitting right-handed veteran first baseman. Wouldn't he work nice in that platoon with that train pool? And that's what they do. And, and he adds that other element of personality. You know, he was training to be a lawyer mm. and uh, working for Scripto in the offseason. And that's why... When Montreal tried to trade Clendenin to Houston, he told them no deal. He said, "You, I'm not going to Houston. Harry Walker was down there, and all the African-American guys in the league felt like Harry Walker was a racist, mm. and, and they felt like that. And, and Clendenin knew him from Pittsburgh, and he wasn't going there. He oh. would have gone home. So they said, no, 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 you just get in shape. You play for Gene Mock and Montreal, and... We'll work out something. Well, the something they worked out was the New York Mets, and he was the missing element. I, I think he was the one thing that gave us some pop um, in our lineup, home run power. And he came in there and, you know, 
he just settled right into that uh, right-handed platoon and, and, and added some pop in that lineup. It was, it was a brilliant move. We gave them Steve Rogers um, and four other guys. It was a big deal for Montreal. They got Steve Rogers, a pretty good right-handed pitcher, yeah. who pitched well for them and, and a couple other teams in the big league. But we got Clendenin for a couple of years, and, and in 69, I just think he was the element at that point in the season, as we came towards the end of June. As you guys took off from there, you ended up the season with 100 wins. As we talked about, you swept the Braves. Yeah, 100 wins. Yeah. We're looking at one another with wonderment when Hodges said, oh, this team could win 85. We win 15 more games. We won a lot of one-run games. We won, I think, three-quarters of our our one-run games, and and that's, that's doing something and with that pitching and we were pretty good defensive team. Mm. It made a difference. You know, and you mentioned as as you get ready to play the World Series, you're playing the Orioles. You're a kid you mentioned you're a kid from Baltimore and game one of the World Series is at Memorial Stadium. How weird was that for oh, you? I'm, I'm I'm scared I am scared to death. I mean you don't want to be, you know, you you know, you just but you go out there and your whole sense of uh anticipation and wonderment. You're in a World Series. You're in this ballpark. I played amateur games in Memorial Stadium in Baltimore where the Orioles played. You know, I'd been in that ballpark. I had worked out with the Baltimore Orioles. I had that uniform. You know, these they were my, that was my team. Yeah. I was a huge Brooks Robinson fan. You know, he was a guy when when he went to when he came to the big leagues, I was a kid growing up in Baltimore and he was fascinating because, um, you know, he, he looked like something, you know, he looked like something. Yeah. And that was, you know, that was, that was, that caught your attention. So now here we are playing them for all the marbles. And I remember running into right field, you know, we, in the bottom of the first inning, I remember running out there into right field and I was as nervous as I could be. And that, that little kid that used to watch Brooks Robinson play. He's still inside you, and his eyes are big as saucers, you know. <laughs> You're trying to settle him down, and all the work I did to make myself a better outfielder with Eddie Yost, hitting me thousands of line drives and ground balls and getting better, and I thought I, you know, I had accomplished some of that. The first hitter was Don Duford. Seaver throws him a fastball. He hits it back to the right field wall, and I'm moving as stiff. I look like the, um, you know, the, the Tim Woodsman and uh, <laughs> the Wizard of Oz, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah. I, I need the oil can, you know, I'm, I'm yeah. in trouble. And I, I do everything wrong. I don't connect with the ball. I, I don't get back in time. I get back late and uh, connect, you know, I've never connected with the ball. And I let the damn thing get over the right field fence and I was upset. But, you know, Buford supposedly, when he came around second base, went by Buddy House and he said, you ain't seen nothing yet. Can you imagine that? Standing wow. there, he just hit opening home run, and and um, you know how how the Orioles must have felt at that point in time. We lose game one, but Kuzman came back and he was deadly in game two. Mm-hmm. And and that's where I think we got our feet planted a little better because I just said to us after game one, you don't have to do anything but what got you here? You don't have to be any better than the team that got, than you played to get here. So don't try to swell up and be bigger than life a game down to the 
Baltimore Orioles, who won a lot more games than we won. So he said, you know, just just be yourselves and be the team that got you here, and we'll be okay. And Kuzman went out there, and he made his point, and we're even now going back to Shea Stadium. That was that was huge in a way that you can't imagine. And then when you get home, you guys win game three. You're up two games to one, and here's where the legend of Ron Swoboda lives on 50 years later, okay? Game four, you're up one nothing in the ninth inning. Tom Seaver is pitching, and your boy, your idol, Brooks Robinson, is up. First and yep. third, and one out. Take me through what happened next. Well, I mean, <clears throat> Brooks, he hits a fastball down in the way. I think Seaver tried to turn it over a little bit, and... Uh, and get a ground ball, it was down, but he had a line drive in the right center field, and I just, on the jump, I'm gone. Um, I got good jumps on the ball. I, I had learned that. I had taught myself that. It wasn't coaching. It was me figuring out how to make that good move and read the ball off the bat. That's one of the things you get from taking thousands of fungos 150 feet away, line drives and ground balls. You read them off the bat, and I got a good read on it, and off I was in the best line that I think I could take, and 95% of the way there, I thought, mm, I'm in trouble. <laughs> um, and at, at the point where I thought, well, it's time to lay out, I lay out fully to my backhand side, which was the best chance I had of getting there, and and the whole thing moved with such grace and alacrity. I you know, graceful was not a word, you know, that appeared in the same sentence with my name very often. <laughs> but I got to my backhand. I caught that thing in my web. It was going nowhere. I had it. And that glove had a lot of snag. Um, if you're curious, in, in the book I wrote, Here's the Catch, I drew that glove with a pencil drawing. I worked a year trying to learn how to draw, and I put that glove out there and uh, over over two three nights, I drew I rendered it in pencil. There's a there's a reproduction of that in the picture section of my book. I learned to draw a little bit, hmm. a little bit, mm-hmm. and and I made a pretty darn good rendering of that glove, and because I had seen that glove a lot, but that was a special glove, and and I knew when that thing hit me in the web, it was it was not coming out. I skidded, kind of rotating, came up on my feet, facing home plate, thank goodness. They score the tying run. It turns into one of the more spectacular sacrifice flies you're ever going to see. Frank Robinson does the right thing and tags up and scores. And and we're even. Um, If it gets by me, who knows? Powell could score from first base, but you don't know. Yeah. Everybody assumes if I don't catch it, it uh, it naturally goes against the fence. But there was room there for me to knock the ball down. Uh, There was room for me to, you know, not maintain possession of it. You know, there were a lot of things that could have happened in the the expanse of, of me either catching it or missing it, you know. It didn't have to go up against the wall. So, you know, we're tied and, and don't score in the bottom of the ninth. We do score in the bottom of the tenth. And that's the absolute fulcrum of the of this series. If we lose it, they even it up at two games apiece. We win it. We take a three-to-one game 
edge, and that's that's a pretty good edge to have in a best four out of seven series. There's something that jumped out at me when I watched that play again recently, and it's I'm looking at it, and the shadows had crept out over home plate, and we always talk about how hard that is sometimes yes. for hitters to see the ball. I'm wondering if it affected you at all, because as you said, you still got a tremendous jump off the ball well, with the shadows around home plate. You still saw that ball off the bat really well, didn't you? Um, Shea was a hard read in the outfield. We saw a lot of outfielders uh, on tough plays misjudge balls in Shea Stadium because he you have to remember, Shea stood three tiers tall, and I describe it in my book as kind of a gigantic globe theater, you know, the mm-hmm. Shakespearean semi-in-round kind of thing. Very few balls ever come out of the stands, and the stands are full of people moving around, and the light on it um, can change very mercurial, fluid background. A lot of... A lot of mistakes to be made uh, by outfielders, pretty good outfielders who were not used to playing with that background. Mm-hmm. And um, I, it, you know, I made my share of mistakes trying to read hmm. balls, but I worked at it until I felt more comfortable with it. So I did get a good read, and I did get a good jump, and and um, you know that made the play for me because otherwise I don't get there. There's something that I like to ask people about, you know, whether it's catching the final out of a World Series or, or a memorable play like the one you had. When you're when you're alone and you close your eyes and you think about it, can you still feel the ball hit your glove? Does that feeling, that sensation come back to you? Yeah, it's funny when you, you know, when you're after it in real time, it's kind of a what you call a white, you know, you're, you're in kind of a white space. It's that kind of little buzz going on, and there's no other noise but just this little staticky thing. And and uh, and when you catch it, I can hear the roar of the crowd in my ears. When you look back at it, you're in your memory. You you kind of, it's kind of like freeze frame, like the still shots that were taken of it. You know, you move through these still shots, and I lay out and. I know, you know, from looking at it. When I look at it now, and I don't look at the play every day, I I, I remember visiting uh, City Field, and uh, you can go into the Met Museum and, and watch that play. Mm-hmm. Um, I am a little more amazed uh, because I'm 75 years old. I'm not going to be doing that kind of move uh, <laughs> again. Um, it does look like, wow, you... You had so little room for error. It is not a play you're going to make um, uh, very often. I mean, the degree of difficulty is such you're going to you could miss most of those, uh, and 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 should. Um, but I caught that one. It's uh, and it's part of Mets lore. It's part of the whole story behind the Miracle Mets and how well, you, you know I did. I did in my book make this, you know, I borrowed the line from Browning, the poet, um, you know, if, if, um, you know, if man's, uh, uh, reach doesn't exceed his grasp, uh, what is a heaven for, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, or mm-hmm. something to that effect. Yeah. And, and that, and that really was it. My, my reach uh, exceeded my grasp by a good bit. 
Ron, your legacy is obviously with the 69 Mets, but I, you know, I know there are probably a few people that don't remember that you played the last two and a half years of your career with the Yankees in 71, yeah. 72, and 73, you know, 40 years ago this year, and, and I spoke to you briefly about it at, you know, earlier this year at the Thurman Munson Awards Dinner, but you, you played with Thurman Munson and a yeah. young Thurman Munson. We lost him 40 years ago. Um, what, what can you tell people about what it was like to watch up close 24, 25-year-old Thurman Munson in action? Yeah, he was, uh, he was interesting because he was a little squatty-body catcher, you know? who could run. Um, and uh, his hand technique with the bat was such that he could get his hands inside of anything. And uh, uh, he was quick to the ball, short to the ball as a hitter. Uh, as a catcher, he'd throw the ball from any angle he ever caught it at. He threw guys out at second base, you know, practically underhand, uh, if that's where he caught the ball. Very, uh, you know, he 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 was not classic form, but if he got you, he got you by a lot. And and but and he was a guy that you know, you know, he he took some pretty good pitchers uh, uh, in in the American League and and took them to task because he could hit and he could run a little bit. And I remember when I I was in Milwaukee out of baseball doing sports driving down the street when I heard about Thurman uh, augering in with that uh, citation jet plane. And I wanted to know what happened because it was like, this was a guy I hung out with a little bit as, as, as a Yankee, him and Bobby Mercer were kind of, uh, were buddies and, and um, you know, Munson, Munson made himself a pretty good player, but, but he was, he was special. He didn't look the part, uh, but boy, oh boy, when he started moving around, he played the part. There's one other thing I want to ask you about, Ron. Uh, you know, obviously everyone over on the Mets side is uh, is excited about what Pete Alonso has done this year, and for good reason. Yeah. You know, he shattered yeah. the Mets rookie home run record, which was held by Daryl Strawberry since 1983. But, I, you know, I'm not sure how many people remember that before Straw, you held that record for almost 20 years. You hit 19 homers as a rookie well, in 1965. Thing, um, he broke home runs in the first half of the season, too, yeah. which was a record I held. Not that many people knew I I held it. And, and, but he hit more home runs in the first half of the season than I did. And that that was a record that nobody knew I had until he broke it. Um, and I met him in spring training. And Pete Alonzo is just, you know, I, I question whether he should have gotten in the All-Star Game home run uh, contest just because so many guys have lost their way uh, in that uh, in that whole celebration of long ball, you know, they get lost in all of yeah. that. Next thing you know, there's swing changes and they're all out of sorts, but Pete's been the same kind of hitter. Um, he, he got, he, he not only won the darn thing, but, but he also uh, never let it affect him as a hitter. He's a guy that's going to strike out once in a while, but you know, when you have him in the lineup, uh, you better pitch him and pitch him carefully. And, you know, it's, it makes me smile that, you know, he's done so well because when you meet him, you go, wow, this kid's got his head on straight. And uh, what a quality young person. 
My thanks to Ron Swoboda, who still knows how to tell the story of his one shining moment with such enthusiasm even 50 years later. Swoboda spent his post-playing career as a TV sportscaster, as you may have heard him allude to, and the bulk of that time was spent in New Orleans, where he still lives. If you're new here or have missed any episodes, please check out the 30 with Murdy archive at radio.com. You'll find my most recent conversations there with actor, director, and Tigers fan Timothy Busfield and baseball and broadcasting great Tim McCarver. Coming up next week, a look back at the 40th anniversary of the 1979 We Are Family Pittsburgh Pirates and a conversation with their closer, Kent Tocolvi. Subscribe and review us at radio.com, Apple Podcasts, or any place you get your podcasts. Until next time, thank you for listening. I'm Sweeney Murdy. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.